class is in session, and the subject is hydropower. Welcome back to DAM, the official podcast of Northwest Hydropower. I'm your host, Austin Rohr, and I manage all things communications here at Northwest River Partners. As you may have already noticed from today's intro and the title of this episode, we're trying something a little different today. Before we jump into what Hydro 101 is, let's talk about why the changeup is happening. First, no, DAM is not fundamentally changing. This is more of a one-off episode and hopefully the start of a useful educational series that supplements the regular podcast. We've got four guests lined up in the next two weeks and more irons in the fire beyond that, but we weren't able to schedule anything that worked with our Every Other Friday releases. Second, the idea of doing a Hydro 101 has been floated since, really, damn started a little over a year ago, and we felt it was important and useful. Many people have also suggested that we do something along these lines. However, we've never been able to get lined up with a guest who was willing and able to take on the subject. That brings us to today. I had no guests lined up, and a subject that is long overdue for coverage on the podcast sitting right in my lap. There's always Hail Mary options we can try under these circumstances, but I'm opting instead for the when life gives you lemons approach and bringing an experimental lemonade to market that will hopefully be to the taste of this audience. Now that we have that out of the way, let's clear up something else. I am not the world's foremost expert on hydropower. Over the course of my career, I've gained a good understanding of how things work, but my job is to communicate the complexity of the subject of hydropower and the other issues we cover in a way that is more digestible to the average person. That is exactly what I aim to do with today's discussion on the basics of hydropower. Understand that there is an extreme degree of nuance to what I am going to be covering today, and much of that nuance will not be included. That is the role of our regular episodes of DAM featuring subject matter experts. I think it's important to make a clear distinction between a macro-level discussion such as this and the more microscopic discussions that you may be accustomed to if you're a regular listener. In putting this together, I had to study up on the subject myself and actually filled in a few gaps in my own knowledge. I hope that even for those of you with a more advanced understanding of hydropower, there will be moments here where you're able to pick up something useful and fill in some gaps as well. Ultimately though, this podcast should provide you with a foundation that helps you to better understand our regular discussions and hydropower as a whole. We'll go over some various terms and features, explore what they mean, and whether or not they relate to what we most often cover at the organization. Okay, so let's start by actually defining hydropower. If you go and Google that, you'll see it described as hydroelectric power, a noun. Not super helpful. Instead, we'll break the word up. Uh, hydro is going to be referring to water and power is referring to the capturing of energy. You may see words like water power, hydroelectricity, or hydro for short. 
These are often used interchangeably, but ultimately they mean basically the same thing. Your ears may have perked up when I said capturing energy rather than generation. I say that because hydropower is a pretty broad umbrella. Some argue that the origins of hydropower come from the water wheel, a technology that dates back thousands of years and predates electricity as we know it today. With a water wheel, the kinetic energy of flowing water is being captured and used to power basic machinery for milling grain, crushing rocks, or various other tasks. When you look at the history of the water wheel, it's not hard to see how it slowly evolved into hydropower dams as we know them now. However, in our modern era, we say generation because the primary role of hydropower is to generate electricity. There are also many forms of hydropower. These can be things like pump storage or marine or tidal energy. We explored pump storage at length in episode two of DAM, and I encourage you to listen to that if you're interested in that subject. For today, we're going to limit our focus to hydropower dams specifically. These may also be known as conventional or traditional hydropower. So when you hear me say hydropower, hydroelectricity, or hydro, that is what I'll be referring to. I should also note that hydroelectric dams can take many forms, shapes, and sizes. We always like to say no two dams are alike, and that is because no two rivers are alike. Each dam needs to be designed to fit the needs of the site chosen, and therefore each one may have unique features. For the purpose of this discussion, we're going to talk more generally about the types of dams we have here in the Northwest, and particularly those within the federal system that we spend the bulk of our time focusing on. So how does a hydroelectric dam actually work? Well, first let's talk about the water cycle. Water evaporates as a result of solar energy, or sunshine, and then rises towards the atmosphere. As it rises and the air temperature drops, it condenses into clouds, which produce precipitation in the form of rain or snowfall. That precipitation runs towards the lowest point as a result of gravity and collects in bodies of water like streams, lakes, and rivers, and if possible, returns to an ocean. This cycle is happening on a constant, recurring basis and fluctuates based on factors such as the season of the year. For instance, we have wetter winters and drier summers. Now, because of the water cycle, we can count on water bodies like streams and rivers to be available consistently enough to construct a dam and have reliable access to power. As for how the dams themselves work, they rely on the same gravitational forces that cause a river to flow in the first place. Flow is really a result of gravity, and without the flow of water, there is no energy available. Even in a relatively small river, you can think of the forces that flow to be fairly strong. A dam is interrupting that flow, in a sense, and diverting it through a system where it can be used to spin a turbine before being returned to the river to continue heading downstream. To paint the picture of the inner workings of a dam and understand the individual components, we'll cover things from the upstream side and work our way down. Now, behind a dam, you have what's called a reservoir. This is a body of water pooled behind the structure itself. 
From there, you have an intake or opening in the structure, which allows water to flow into the dam. The actual pathway that leads from the intake to the turbine is called a penstock. It's kind of a funny word, but the most basic way to describe it would be like a pipe or a tunnel. As for the turbine itself, this is a large set of blades which are designed to be rotated by the flow of the water and the forces of the gravity. The turbine is attached to a generator, and from that generator, the electricity is produced. The magic of a generator is in most cases a shaft covered in magnets, which is then spun by the turbine. On the outside of that shaft is a stationary set of copper coils, and as the magnets spin past them, electricity is produced. If you're familiar with what a stator is in an engine, and I realize that many people listening to this who are not necessarily hydropower experts may also not be engine experts, uh, but essentially the stator in an engine is the same thing. It's just when we're talking about a hydropower generator, it's a much larger scale. Now, once the water has passed through the turbine, it then exits the dam at its base and carries on its way down the river. Now, much like the portion of the dam which allows the intake of water to the turbine, the portion of the dam where water exits beyond the turbine has a funny name as well, and that's called the tail race. Finally, when we talk about the dam structure, there is usually a head responsible for creating the reservoir by interrupting the flow of the river, and a powerhouse which stores, among many things, the turbine and generator. In some cases, you'll see that the head and the powerhouse are actually combined into sort of one unit, and in other cases, they may be separate. It should also be mentioned that the heads to many dams include what's called a spillway, and this is essentially allowing water from the reservoir to flow over the dam instead of flowing through it. While not entirely true in all cases, the height of the head of a dam is largely responsible for determining the size of a reservoir. The higher the head of a dam, the more water you're generally going to store behind it. More water means that more is available to generate energy. When describing dams, you may hear terms like high head or low head, which refers directly to this characteristic. We'll break down those characteristics in just a second, but I do want to point out that while we're covering all of these different terms, again, please keep in mind, this is all very general, right? So a lot of the things that we're describing may not necessarily describe a specific dam, but are more the characteristics you would expect when you're kind of broadly understanding how a hydroelectric dam is constructed. So going back to high head versus low head, there really isn't a specific height that determines which is which, but in brief summary, a low head dam is going to be pretty short. We're talking a few stories at most, and usually these dams allow water to flow continuously over them. So you don't really have that sort of spillway that we just talked about. While they can produce energy, a lot of times you're gonna see these sorts of dams used for things like irrigation, water storage, or some kind of flood control. They're also usually much smaller scale structures that you see on smaller streams and rivers. Now, in my research, I did see some reference to a separation being made between a medium and a high head, 
but in the Northwest, I can't specifically recall anyone using the term medium head dam. And so I think we're gonna just avoid going through that entirely. For today's discussion, we're gonna call out the differences specifically between low head and high head dams. And I think that that's probably sufficient. Also, I think we can really quickly cover what a high head dam is because it's the opposite of what I just described and is essentially what we're used to seeing around here with our hydroelectric projects. If you look up images of Bonneville or Grand Coulee or really any of the dams that are part of the federal system, you'll get a gist of the idea. They are anything but small or short. Next, we'll cover quickly the difference between impoundment and diversion. And no, we're not talking about your car getting towed. Impoundment describes any dam in which the entire river is blocked by the dam structure, or simply put, impounding the river. A diversion describes a system in which some of the water from a river is diverted, perhaps by a channel or a pipeline, it runs through the dam and then is returned back to the river. Broadly speaking, the hydropower we discuss in our work and the hydropower that we experience in the Northwest is almost exclusively of the impoundment type. Another important distinction, perhaps the most important distinction to today's discussion specifically, is the difference between a storage dam and a run of the river dam. The names are pretty straightforward, but we'll go over each because I think that there are a few common misconceptions with what they actually can or cannot do. A storage dam includes a large reservoir, which allows it to operate independently of the natural flow of the river. When you don't want to generate electricity, you can fill the reservoir up, and when you do want to generate electricity, you can draw from that same reservoir. This is where terms like capacity and flexibility are introduced. A large reservoir is like having a giant battery. There is tons of potential energy in the water held there, which could be utilized at a moment's notice. That ability to generate or not generate means that a storage dam has a lot of flexibility in how much power we can produce and when we want to produce it. Another way of looking at this is that a storage dam doesn't rely solely on the flow of the river and can in fact in many cases operate independently of the flow of the river within reason. Some of the most popular lakes in the Northwest are actually the reservoirs created for storage hydroelectric dams. Now a run of the river dam, as the name implies, does not include a large reservoir for storing water. Technically speaking, we still refer to the body of water behind these dams as a reservoir, but this is not the same as having an independent reservoir from the river itself. For that reason, these dams usually have less overall capacity and less flexibility. They instead have to rely on spilling water when they don't want to generate and they cannot hold the water back, and when they are called on to ramp up generation, they have a limit to how much they can produce. I also want to point out that, especially in the case of run-of-the-river dams, although they are impounding the river as we covered earlier, they do not impede the flow of the river. In many cases, the current actually remains quite strong. Now, in covering the difference between storage and run-of-the-river, 
and talking about spilling water and holding back water, it is important to keep in mind that there is a lot more that goes into the decisions than just solely generating energy. This would include uh, different policies on water, irrigation, uh, just other uses of the river in general. But as far as talking about just sort of the mechanics of dams and the differences in their attributes, we're not getting into some of those other reasons for why they may choose to store or release water here today. It is really important to note though, that a run of the river dam can still technically store water as well, just to a significantly lesser extent. At least in the case of dams we have here in our own backyard, they are not entirely at the free will of nature to determine how much energy they're going to generate at any one time. Along those same lines, a storage dam also has limitations. You might imagine you cannot store an infinite amount of water, nor could you draw it down to zero. The margins which a reservoir must be maintained within are called the minimum pool and maximum pool, and everything between is the operating range. You may also see this described as the minimum operating pool and maximum operating pool, or the minimum and maximum pool elevation. As a quick aside, I'll just say that for those of you being introduced to this topic, you may notice there are a lot of different terms used to describe the same thing, and they are used interchangeably. I'll do my best to cover all of these, or as many as I can really uncover, but I don't want to make a case as to why you should be using one or the other. I just want you to know what they all are so that it's not confusing trying to keep track when you hear or read them elsewhere. So we often compare reservoirs to batteries, especially since we're talking about energy, and I'll try to do so here. A run of the river dam might be more like having just a standard cell phone battery where a storage dam is like having a backup power bank on hand. They both hold a charge, but we all know that a cell phone battery has a limited range, and having a power bank can greatly extend that range. Also, one is relying solely on the built-in battery available, whereas the other can rely on the power bank without really having to tap into anything in the built-in features. However, in this example, both would have solar charging capabilities because as we previously have discussed, solar energy is really what drives the water cycle and provides an unending supply of more water. How much water is stored or used for generation depends on a number of mechanisms and the type of dam, but the features I went over earlier, such as the spillway and intake play key roles in determining how much water is allowed in, how much is held back, and how much is released downstream. Again, that is referring specifically to the mechanical part of a dam, not talking about maybe the different reasons that play into why you would do one versus another. So if you recall, I mentioned two dams previously for you to do an image search on, and hopefully you were able to pull those up, or you'll remember to do so later if you're not available to now. They are good examples of the distinction between the two types of dams we just discussed. Grand Coulee is a storage dam, which has a large reservoir, and Bonneville is a run-of-the-river dam whose only reservoir is the stretch of the Columbia between itself and the next dam upstream called the Dalles Dam.
Both dams are part of what we refer to as the Federal Columbia River Power System, or FCRPS. Although Columbia River is in the name, what they really are referring to is actually the Columbia Basin watershed, which includes tributaries such as the Snake, and if you listen to this podcast or pay attention to our organization much, you're probably very familiar with that river and its dams. What's worth understanding is that this system, comprised of both storage and run-of-the-river projects, works integrally to meet the needs of our region. If, for example, a storage dam upstream releases more water, it has a downstream effect on the run-of-the-river dams below. Likewise, a series of -of run-of-the-river dams, like we see on the Lower Columbia and Lower Snake, can be used in conjunction with one another to achieve a desired outcome. Having access to a system of dams, rather than relying on a standalone structure, has innumerable benefits. Finally, there are some other features to hydropower dams worth mentioning. With our run-of-the-river dams in particular, you'll see that they include locks. These are large chambers designed to house vessels with gates at either end that are watertight. The water levels inside of that chamber are then raised or lowered, almost like an elevator, to allow the vessel to navigate up or downstream past the dam. Another thing you might notice at many, but not all, of the dams are the various fish passage structures. These include fish ladders for upstream navigation and spillway wares for downstream navigation. A fish ladder is simply a series of pools in a staircase-like arrangement with water flowing downstream. Fish, particularly adult salmon and steelhead making their return to reproduce, naturally swim against the downstream flow and will jump from one pool to the next until they reach the reservoir beyond the dam. The spillway ware is an invention designed for juvenile salmon migrating out to the ocean and is similar to a slide which allows them safer passage over the spillway of the dam. Finally, there is the infrastructure on site at the dam to carry energy away via high voltage transmission lines, which is then spread across the Northwest grid and distributed where it needs to go. There are many other features to a hydroelectric dam. Some are largely universal and some unique to specific sites, but what we've covered here really pretty much sums up the key components that you're most likely to encounter and identify visually. Another thing worth touching on is the renewability of hydropower. I think, or at least hope, that by illustrating how hydro works, it's fairly self-explanatory why it is considered a renewable energy. So long as the water cycle doesn't cease to occur, we can count on a predictable supply of precipitation to continue producing energy and no water is consumed or wasted in the process of producing that energy. Precipitation does fluctuate year to year, which is why we have a water supply forecast. And since a large portion falls in the form of snow, some of that precipitation does not reach our rivers until melting occurs during warmer months. For that reason, snowpack is really important to consider as part of that water supply forecast. However, because we have a hydro system, we can make adjustments to account for these fluctuations, and 
when paired with other energy resources in the region, consistently meet our region's energy needs. At the same time, that flexibility is also what makes hydropower valuable for energy sources like wind and solar. Unlike hydro, which has a fairly stable supply of water, wind and sunshine can vary wildly, meaning it's not possible to control their energy output in the same way. This is what we refer to as intermittency. Hydropower, on the other hand, is what we call firm. It does not experience the same fluctuations and can produce relatively consistent energy. As a result of the intermittency of solar and wind and due to energy policies which mandate that we add more of these resources to work towards replacing fossil fuels, there is a great need to balance their fluctuations. We could cover this topic with an entirely separate podcast at some point, and I hope that we do. But in short, the supply of energy and the demand for that energy must be in balance at all times. If you produce more power than you consume, or you consume more power than you produce, the results can be disastrous. Think widespread blackouts for which the consequences and costs can be great. The simple answer would be to utilize something like a large-scale battery to store and release the energy produced by solar and wind, such that they are independent from their intermittency challenges. But such large-scale battery technology is still in development and has many hurdles to overcome as of the time of recording this podcast. So, in our region, we've instead looked to hydropower to solve the answer. Now, because hydroelectric dams can store potential energy in the form of water in reservoirs, almost like a battery, and because they can control how much energy they produce or spill with relatively great precision, grid operators can actually make adjustments in response to what wind and solar are doing to ensure that supply and demand is balanced and met. If you look at this on a chart, and there are charts like this available for those interested, hydropower almost perfectly mirrors wind in the Northwest in particular. When one goes up, the other goes down and vice versa, almost every second of every day. As far as covering the basics of hydropower itself goes, I think we're pretty much arriving at that point now. I didn't really get into the various benefits of hydropower or take off ramps of that sort. Uh, while we are an advocacy organization and I consider myself a hydro advocate, I really wanted to stick to this being a purely educational discussion where we just talk about what hydropower is and how it works. Of course, if you want to learn more about this topic, you can always head to nwriverpartners.org. In this instance, I would also encourage you to check out other resources if you're interested in learning more about hydropower, or would benefit from some visuals to better understand what I described. Those recommendations would include, but are not limited to, the Bonneville Power Administration, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, the Department of Energy, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, and the Energy Information Administration. There are also a few other organizations outside of NWRP, including the National Hydropower Association and the Foundation for Water and Energy Education. If I didn't mention anyone or anything that you felt I should have covered today, please let me know via our contact form on our website 
or by emailing us directly at info at nwriverpartners.org, and I'll do my best to make sure it is given airtime in a future episode. Likewise, if you have follow-up questions, you can utilize those same resources to get in touch with me, and I'd be happy to provide you with an answer to the best of my ability. Shortly after this podcast, we're going to be recording a special episode of DAM with a guest who regularly answers energy and utility questions. So if you act quickly after this episode releases, I can try to include it as part of that discussion. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, I would greatly appreciate a five-star review on your favorite listening platform. And I encourage you to subscribe and turn on alerts so you don't miss future episodes of DAM, including more Hydropower 101, which arrive every other Friday. I'd also love to get your feedback on Hydro 101 if you want me to do more of these and if you have topics you'd like me to cover. Finally, make sure to follow us on social media at NW River Partners. We're on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and X. I hope you all learned something valuable today or at least got a nice refresher. And with that, see ya.